All right, so we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tonight, 2 Corinthians 11. Um, just I'll throw this in as a side note. Uh, we're going, I'm getting close to the end of 2 Corinthians, so if you have a suggestion for what I should do next, I won't necessarily, I'm not saying the first person to talk to me will, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely do it, but uh, throw your suggestions my way and, and so I can be prayerfully uh, considering what to do next. I will say this fall is going to be unusual. I'm going to be out a lot. We're, we've got a couple of trips uh, that are coming up and, and staff retreat and, and then my annual sermon retreat. So I'll be out. There will be like six Wednesdays this fall that I'm going to miss. So I'm going to have to communicate well to y'all to know when, when we're here and when we're not. But uh, anyway, if you have any input for me, please let me know. So in I rem- if you remember... Chapter 10 is where there's a turn in the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul becomes more aggressive, I would say. His tone changes to such an extent some scholars even think it's a separate letter that was tacked on to 2 Corinthians. I don't think that, but some do. What Paul's doing is he's defending his ministry, and it's a shame that he has to do that. But sometimes sometimes false accusations are lodged against godly people. I've heard somebody say that if you never want to be criticized, don't do anything. That's really the only way. If you ever take any responsibility, then you will be criticized. Sad to say that's even true in the church. And that's not just true of ministers. That's true of any kind of volunteer or leadership position you take. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. And Paul finds himself defending his ministry, not just because he's worried about his reputation. Frankly, I don't think he is at all. I think he's defending his ministry because he knows the people who are accusing him are trying to lead the church down a a wrong direction, a direction that is false, that is not the gospel. So Paul is defending his ministry because otherwise the people are going to go after a gospel that's not true. He's defending his ministry so he can defend his gospel. So you think about the accomplishments we treasure, the experiences, the things we put on our resume, I remember when I uh, first got out of seminary and I put together a resume for the first time. And, you know, I I remember looking at all the, they're actually classified ads, or at least there were back when there were Baptist papers that came out once a week. And and you would see, oh, there's a church in, you know, such and such that's looking for a pastor and you'd send them a resume. And I remember somebody saying, you put your picture, they always said, you got to put a picture on it. Those resumes with a picture look, do better. And somebody said, why'd you put a picture of you and your wife? That's going to make them think that, that she's like the co-pastor. And I said, well, I'll take that chance. I just want them to see who I married because then they'll say, well, if he could get her, he's got something going on. And, and it worked. Um, and I, yeah. It's interesting the things we choose to put on a resume. For instance, when this church five, and, five years ago and change was talking to me and praying about whether I should come as pastor. They didn't ask what sports I played in high school. They didn't ask if I could drive a stick shift or if I knew how to cook or or anything like that. There were other things they wanted to know. We treasure, based on certain situations, some experiences and skills and others not so much. When we look at our life history, what are the events, what are the experiences, what are the things we've learned that really matter the most? 
Paul in chapter 11, this is maybe my favorite chapter in 2 Corinthians, it's either this one or chapter 5, he tells us what's most important about himself, and it's surprising what he lists. He doesn't list the things you would expect him to. He starts by saying, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now we don't think, there's a lot of things we think of when we think of the Apostle Paul. Sarcasm and a sense of humor probably aren't among them. And yet this whole chapter is an example of irony, sarcasm. He is being very sarcastic, and you have to read it that way, otherwise you're going to misunderstand. If you read chapter 11, and this goes for other parts of the scripture as well, if you read chapter 11 as if everything he says is literally what he means, you're going to miss the point entirely. And this is an example. He says, bear with me in a little foolishness. I bet you didn't think Paul had any foolishness in it. He says, I'm going to be, I'm going to be silly for a while. And then he says, I feel a divine jealousy. Isn't that an interesting term? Divine jealousy is the kind of jealousy God feels over us. Sunday we talked about that a little bit, about how God says in, in the second commandment, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And that's not the kind of jealousy most human beings have, a jealousy that says, I want what you have, or I don't want to share what I have. Instead, it's more like the jealousy that your parents had. If you had good parents, your parents were jealous over you. They defended you against things. They protected you against things that could harm you. And they were jealous enough that they would confront you and discipline you if they saw qualities in you that were going to get you into trouble further down the road. That's a divine jealousy, and that's the jealousy Paul feels over them. And I think it's interesting the way he puts it. He makes it sound like he's a father. And back in those days, of course... All marriages were arranged. He's saying, I've arranged a marriage between you and Jesus, and I want to make sure you are pure and undefiled when you get there. And that's a beautiful way to put this. That's, that's the way Paul pictures his role in discipling the Corinthians. Verse 3 says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Here's another example of the irony. He's calling his opponents super apostles. But it's pretty obvious he doesn't think they're either apostles or super. They, he's giving them a title that they have given themselves. They are, they are above. They are superior in their minds to Paul and to others who preach the true gospel. What is he saying in those earlier verses? He's saying, I, I'm, I'm worried about you. You're, you're judgmental of things that you should be tolerant of, and you're tolerant of things you should be judgmental of. You judge me for things that don't matter, but you let these people come in and speak lies to you twist the gospel into something that it's not, and you let it go down without a fight. So he says, I'm not inferior to these super apostles. Verse 6, he says, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, remember what we talked about last week, Paul never claimed to be a great speaker. He says, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. I may not be the most gripping speaker, Paul says. They may be able to speak circles around me, but I know the truth. 
I know the truth because it's been revealed to me through a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and through being called as an apostle of Christ. So, okay, I may not be able to out-preach them, but you should listen to me because I mean what I say and I know that it's true. Verse 7, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. I think the implication Paul's making here is that the Corinthians may have looked down on Paul for the simplicity of his lifestyle. He was a poor man. And part of the reason he was poor was he never accepted any money for his preaching. Now, I need to make it clear, Paul Paul states very clearly in other parts of his letters that he believes that people who preach the gospel should earn a living from it. So there's nothing unchristian about getting paid to serve the Lord. And I say hallelujah, of course, because that's how I make my living. But, yeah, Byron, amen that too. I appreciate that. But Paul, in a way, says, I'm the exception. Because I'm out there preaching in places where the gospel's never been preached before. And so I've got no business going into uh, you know, a brand new town and, and saying, okay, all you Lydians, you're going to have to give me all your money, and then I'll tell you the truth. He doesn't want, it, he doesn't want the truth to come with a, with a ransom attached. He wants to be able to preach for free. And these little churches that he's planted, he doesn't want to burden them. And so what does Paul do? He works a regular job. He does what he did before. He uses the skill God gave him, which is he, he builds tents and sells them. Um, so he was a worker with leather, uh, and, and it was hard work. He didn't leave a lot of spare time. And ironically, it seems to be that the Corinthians were saying, well, look at Paul. Look at the way he dresses. He doesn't, he doesn't wear nice clothes. He doesn't, have a nice, he doesn't have any transportation. He doesn't live in a nice house. These other guys, they show signs of success. They're doing well for themselves. Doesn't that sound like the way we analyze people? Not just preachers, although we do that as well. Well, he's, he's pastoring a big church, and that guy over there is pastoring a small church. Obviously, this guy over here is the, the better preacher, the better pastor, the better man of God. Well, that's not necessarily true. I've always said uh, it'll be interesting when we get to heaven and we find out that you know, Pastor, Pastor Jones, who pastored a church of 15 or 20, here's well done, good and faithful servant. And Pastor, Pastor Megachurch just kind of squeaks in and, and has nothing to show for his efforts because he did it for his own glory. But beyond that, we judge all kinds of people by these kind of superficial measurements, how they look, the, the quality of their lifestyle in terms of, you know, what are they able to afford? Paul is not, again, this is why I say he's ironic. He's not really asking the question in verse 6, did I sin by by preaching to you free of charge? He's being sarcastic. Should you hold it against me that I didn't come up and demand that you take up a collection? Of course he doesn't believe that. He's trying to help them to see how wrong they've been. Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. That's uh, the, the area where he is. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. 
And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now these are harsh words. And he means every one of them. It, it's interesting to look throughout the New Testament and see there are two constant themes in terms of warnings. Every New Testament book is different. Everyone has different themes. But you'll find in every book of the New Testament two warnings, and the, for, for churches that is. One warning is watch out for division in your midst. God wants us to love one another. Jesus, is, Jesus prays in John 17, the night before he dies. I want them to be one as you and I, Father, are one. And every book in the New Testament, you can see that emphasis on love one another, treat each other well, uh, protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The other warning that is consistent in the New Testament is watch out for false teaching. And we don't hear that a lot these days. We don't hear this concern for uh, watch out for that which is false and hold to what is true. But here it is, Paul saying, the men who come in and try to lead you astray, they will look like angels of light, but they'll actually be messengers of Satan. And you know what that says to us, right? It means we can't necessarily trust our senses. A, a minister of, uh, of heresy, a, a preacher of the false gospel, will sound legitimate. He will give the impression of godliness, passion. The word we use these days is anointing, right? We say, oh, that, that, that preacher is so anointed. What we mean is when he speaks, he really gets my, my juices flowing. He really stirs my spirit and makes me want to stand up and shout amen. That's not necessarily the, the sign you're looking for. I mean, it could be good, but it could be false. His, his appearance, his education, uh, the quality of his rhetoric, right? All of these are good things in the hands of God and terrible things in the hands of the devil. All that to say, if you have a false teacher, he's probably going to be someone who is appealing. He's not going to be the guy who you walk in and you're immediately turned off from. He's going to be appealing. He's going to be attractive. So watch out for that. How do we know? And this is a side note because this isn't what Paul talks about. But elsewhere in the Bible, we see, how do we know whether a preacher is true or false? Obviously, the first criteria is judge his words against the word of God and see, does he preach the word? And I need to say, I always need to say when I get to this point, when I say judge it against the word of God, I mean the core doctrines of the faith. I mean, just because he disagrees with you on some obscure translation or interpretation of, of a passage, that doesn't mean he's a heretic. There are plenty of parts of the Bible we, we can serve the same God together and agree to disagree on. But there are core doctrines of the faith that matter. Jesus is the Son of God. He lived a sinless life. He died for our sins. He rose again the third day. He is ascending to heaven, or he ascended to heaven. He is coming back someday to judge the living and the dead. Uh, you and I are saved by grace through faith, not by works. It's our responsibility to share the gospel with the lost. I mean, things like that. Make sure he preaches the truth and does not 
water it down. But the second criteria, Jesus said, know them by their fruit. Look at the fruit of their lives. Look at their character. One of the, one of the problems we have in, a, in our culture today is we have, we've made certain preachers into celebrities. And, and listen, there are some of those guys that I treasure. I read their books and I listen to their sermons and they feed me. So I'm not saying they're all bad or even most of them are bad. I'm just saying this idea of making a celebrity out of a preacher is a dangerous thing because that person you listen to on the radio or watch on TV or you buy all their books, you're not able to watch their lives. You're not able to see their character. On the other hand, you are able to see mine, right? We're, we're a big church, but we're small enough that if I'm out of line, you probably know it. And I encourage you to come tell me if that's the case. But one of the things we've seen in the last few years is preachers who are clearly living lives that aren't jiving with their rhetoric, with their preaching, who are living ungodly lives, who are exhibiting false character, and no one confronts them. And after it all falls apart, people say, well, why didn't anybody confront him? The excuse usually is, well, he's doing so much good. I didn't want to get in the way of what God was doing. And that's not, the, that's not the attitude to have. No matter how powerful a preacher is, how effective his ministry is, if he's not living out the scriptures, he needs to be confronted. And, and he doesn't need to be listened to. He does not have, need to have a platform. So that was a side note, but I think it needed to be said. Um, in verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. So you get what Paul's saying, right? I'm being sarcastic here. And this is where he lists his resume. Now, side note, what would you expect him to say? You would expect him to say, I've been a Christian this long. I've met these apostles, I've studied under these teachers, I've planted this many churches, I've personally won this many people to Christ, right? I've written all these books that's, that today are known as Scripture. Of course, in, in these times, maybe not all of them are, are complete, but, but he's written books by this time that other apostles are referring to as Scripture. He's got a lot of things he could list, but instead, here's what he does list. He says, for, for you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, you were too weak. we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So essentially, he starts by saying, I'm just as Jewish as they are. I'm part of the family of God. By, by specifically saying I'm Hebrew, he says, I live the Jewish lifestyle. I speak the language. I'm not, I'm not someone who's Jewish by blood only. Then he says, verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And then he says kind of in parentheses, I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. 
in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So this is his resume. These are the things I've suffered. This is what has co- it has cost me to represent Christ. Not what you would expect for him to list, right? And the interesting thing is, if you read the book of Acts, you can correlate some of what he lists here to what you see in that book, but not all of it. So, for instance, when it says, once I was stoned, we know about that story. When the people stoned him, they thought he died, and they dragged him outside the walls of the city, and then his friends gathered around him, and he got up, and what did he do? He went back into the city. One of my favorite stories about Paul. We know about some of these other things. The, the 40 lashes minus one. You notice that. In, in Jewish life, you could punish a man by beating him with a whip, but God had said, don't beat a man more than 40 times, otherwise you humiliate him. And it sounds awful, but it was sort of a mercy. It was God's way of saying, uh, you, can, you can punish somebody, but don't go so far. And so the Jews, in order to make sure they didn't miscount, they said 39 is the max. God said 40, let's make it 39. Paul suffered that punishment five different times. Three times beaten with rods. That means that happened in Gentile territory. We know one of those was in Philippi. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. In the book of Acts, only one of these has happened by the time he writes this. So there are two more that have happened since Acts was completed uh, that we don't even know about. We don't know about this night and a day adrift at sea. Think about how terrifying that is. 24 hours, you're just floating in the waves. That happened to Paul. All these dangers he mentions, most of them we don't know about. Think about danger from my own people, danger from false brothers. There were actually people, this staggers us to think about, there were actually people who would infiltrate the churches who didn't even believe, specifically for the purpose of tearing the church down. And that was happening. And now look at, uh, and finally he he wraps up with, with often without food and cold and exposure, hunger and thirst. He lived in poverty. Remember, Paul was a successful person before he met Jesus. And then things got tough. And then look at verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Now, people sometimes ask me why pastors burn out. And they say, you know, why do so many pastors quit the ministry? Uh, you don't work longer hours than a lot of other jobs. You, know, you, know, you face criticism, well, so do I in my work. You know, you've, got, you've got pressure and stress, well, so do I. I think this is the difference. And not to take anything away from any other profession, but this is the only profession I know of where every single person in the church you feel responsible for. And that's why pastors burn out, in my opinion. It's because of that weight of responsibility, that, that sense that, Every person in my flock is my responsibility. They, they're somebody that God's going to hold me accountable for. So if this family is breaking up, there's a divorce going on, it hurts me. If, if this person has stopped coming to church, it's not really about my hurt feelings that they don't want to hear me preach anymore. It's more about, well, I hope they're going somewhere. And that goes on and on and on. 
And then when those same people turn and criticize that pastor, it really hurts because he's been pouring out his heart for them. And that's what Paul is mentioning here. And if that's true of a person who pastors one church, and it is, Paul's saying, I pastor dozens of churches. I oversee dozens of churches. So I'm this stress, this daily stress is on my mind day and night. And that's, to Paul, the hardest thing about being a pastor, even harder than all the sufferings that he's endured. And it just magnifies the fact that Paul had a commitment to Christ that enabled him to find his work joyful in spite of all of this. He was able to say, I rejoice in everything. God has blessed me abundantly. And then finally, he says in verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So why does he tell this one specific story? I don't know. But it seems to me he's telling it because that was the first time he ever suffered as a Christian. Remember, he was saved in Damascus, and then he went away for a while, went away to Arabia, and then he comes back to Damascus and preaches, and this is when he's attacked. So for the first time, just think about it, Paul up till then had been the persecutor. This is the first time he became the persecuted. He'd been the hunter, now he's the hunted. And it was sort of a way of saying, okay, my life has changed. Everything's different now. So again, he doesn't list his accomplishments. He doesn't list his titles, doesn't say he's an apostle. He doesn't give references. He doesn't say, hey, talk to Peter, talk to John, talk to James. He certainly doesn't list his net worth because there wasn't much. What is he doing? I think he's putting his enemies to shame. On one hand, he's saying, you guys wanna boast? Let me show you what it means to be a real Christian, a real apostle. He's putting them to shame. None of them can compete with this. He's also saying, God has taken me through all of this. God has brought me through these difficulties. He's literally boasting, but not in himself. He's boasting in the God who's able to to make him survive such a life and still be effective. And, And it's an amazing list when you read through it. It's humbling, isn't it? to read through that. It kind of makes you think, you know, I'm, I'm not going to gripe about anything for a while. I, I don't really have any room to gripe. I think it's a good thing for us as Christians to read through this list once in a while and just see how good we have it. So let me bring it back to us. When you think about your life, what is most important? You can list the key dates of your life, the, the day you graduated, the day you got married, the birth dates of your kids, maybe some important milestones in your career. And all those are great. I'm not saying you should hide those. But can you tell the story of, here are the things that God has brought me through. Here here are the sins that I used to struggle with that now he's given me victory over. Can you tell those stories? I used to be someone who didn't tell the truth, but I... Now, I, now I'm honest. I used to be a person who uh, was hateful in my, in my speech, but now I, I speak edifying words. I used to be timid, but now God has given me boldness. I used to know nothing about the scriptures, and now, now I feel confident in my ability to share the gospel. Whatever God has brought you through sin-wise. What about sufferings? 
Can you tell stories of times of tragedy, times of sickness, times of poverty, stress, danger, where God brought you through it and how he brought you through it and the lessons he taught you through it? Those are valuable things to, to be able to tell about. What about enemies that you've had that God enabled you to overcome? May, even, even enemies that you were able to forgive and find reconciliation with. Or maybe, you know, in some cases, those enemies never repented. And you just had to say, I, I've done everything I can to show them love. I'm just going to walk on and know that my God loves me. Um, what about prayers that he's answered? What have been the biggest prayers that you can think of that God has delivered you answers to? See, these are the kinds of things that we need to boast in. We need to tell these stories because people need to know. I think this is why I think keeping a spiritual journal is such a good thing. One of the, one of the, one of the tragedies I think of the Christian life is we pray and pray and pray and God delivers and then we just move on to the next thing instead of stopping to celebrate and record and come to church and come to life group and say, let me tell you what the Lord has done. That lifts everyone's spirit and it blesses you as well. So I'm not giving you an absolute assignment. I'm not going to check on you and see if you've done this, but I'm just going to suggest, how about that? That one day you take some time and it might take quite a while. It might take a whole day, in fact, and you just sit down and write down, here's what the Lord has brought me through. And you know what? If you're able to write that down, what a, what a treasure that will be for your kids and grandkids and friends and others to look and see, here's what God has done for me. And even if you never get to the point of writing it down, just spending time mentally rehearsing will bless you and will lead to worship and will glorify you, will glorify God in your life. What is your resume with Christ? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we know that you are bigger and better than anything that comes against us, including our own sin, including our earthly enemies, Lord, including the obstacles and, and challenges we face, even including the forces of evil. They are nothing in comparison to you. Help us to remember that. When we go through difficulties, help us to trust in you. And Lord, when you bring us through those difficulties, whatever they are, I pray that we would take the time to give you thanks and to celebrate that and to share that with others. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.